Hi, and welcome to Renton Christian Center's Recorded Ministries. We hope you'll enjoy listening to this message as Pastor Alex leads us in God's Word. It is our hope that you'll personally experience God through these teachings. Now here's Pastor Alex. How many of you would agree that we live in an age of confusion? If I want to start a, a short series for the next three Sundays talking about fact versus fiction. You know, the, uh, the fact that so many people have no reference point for what they believe or what they don't believe is just very, very troubling. Um, it's sad to me that so many people listen to some internet blogger before they open their Bible. They'll even listen to celebrities in Hollywood to kind of take their cues as to what's acceptable behavior, what's appropriate dress, what should my opinion be on certain cultural and social issues. Um, even Russell Wilson, I mean, people are like getting tweeted by Russell every day because they want to make sure they're up on the latest whatever he thinks about something. All wonderful people, I'm sure, in their own right, but, but unless we have a reference point that is solid, man, we are on dangerous ground. I, I want to just give you a couple of, of things that are current right now in our, in our culture that are uh, very, very fascinating. Okay, Jackson 5, how many remember those? Those guys? What was one of their favorite songs? ABC. 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 I'll, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there, yeah. He certainly did. You've got a great memory. The reason I bring them up is not for to advertise them or mourn the death of Michael Jackson, but just to point out the fact that there were some college students at Whitworth, a Christian college soccer team, who decided just for fun they would dress up like the Jackson 5. Okay, now, they have made national headlines because it's being assumed that they put on this what's called blackface, which is a, a very historical movement in our country from years and years and years ago, and it's being assumed by the media that the reason they did that was to put down the black community. And that's all it could possibly be. So they've been ripped, they've been suspended from school, they've been uh, told they can't do certain activities on the campus because of their one goofy little act. Now, I'm not saying I'm for this, but what I'm saying is, political correctness has become the god of our country to the point where people who who can't possibly see anything any other way can only say that if you and i do or say something that's oh for some reason possibly embarrassing to someone else we've got to be horrible people whether it's fact or fiction and so we need to have people who think a little bit more clearly and the only way we can do that is to find out what's god's opinion amen another strange part of our culture. This sad, sad athlete who was a decathlon winner at the Olympics years and years ago has gradually determined that um, he is a woman trapped in a man's body. That's his explanation. And so he's gone all the way to make himself look like a woman. Talk about confusion. It's so sad to me. And never mind the fact that he never changed his DNA he never changed his chromosome makeup from XY to XX. The way God designed him is fixed. There's no way man can ever alter those two portions about what creates our identity. And yet, in his mind and the minds of many, I mean, even ESPN, what used to be the bastion of machoism, gave him an award for courage. 
It's just sad to me. Now, as Christians, you're thinking, okay, I'll move the picture because this is kind of creepy. <laughs> Let's go backwards. Let's do these guys. What's interesting is we as Christians are not immune to the same danger. As we gradually begin to think, you know, I go to church, I got the Bible down, I've read it a few times. If we don't have something concrete to establish our faith on so that it becomes immovable, we will be moved. That's just a fact of life. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. So we just got to always go back to, Lord, why do I believe what I believe? Let's go to one more recent instance in our country. Kim Davis is a clerk, county clerk in, uh, in Kentucky. Forget which one, but she's a kind of a small town gal, works for the county. And uh, clerks are commanded by the job description to give out marriage certificates. Now that the Supreme Court has made gay marriage legal, and she says, you know, as a Christian, I cannot issue those licenses. I, I just can't violate my conscience and my commitment to Christ. She's now in jail for that, for contempt of court. Now, I don't really know if that's really the right stance to take because if you make a commitment to serve the county and uphold the law of the land, perhaps you should follow through with that or get a different job. That might be one answer. Okay, that, that, that's logical and, and there's biblical grounds to support that kind of approach. But on the other hand, there is still this gigantic movement in our country to come against anybody who doesn't absolutely tolerate anything and everything, no matter what society throws at us. If you can't tolerate whatever it is the Supreme Court says, then you must be an evil person, and you deserve punishment. And that, that's what's underlying this, this arrest and this jailing. And so, uh, again, there's, there's two sides to that coin, but what I want to point out is the craziness of the thinking of our country where our Constitution was founded on religious liberty, First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. And yet, we seem to just sort of set that aside, and uh, everybody's to be tolerated unless you're a Christian. So I'm just saying craziness. If we don't have something more solid to base our opinions on, we are in danger of just going with the majority. And like Pastor Richard so ably said a couple of weeks ago, wide is the road that leads to destruction and many go therein. And narrow is the road that leads to life and few are those who find it. Do you want to be one of the few? I do. So this morning, I don't want to go over old territory. What I want to do is, is cover something that, that really, I think, gives us some academic and intellectual strength for believing what we believe. I want to talk about where the Bible came from. How do we know this book is authentic? How do we know it's from God? How do we know it's reliable that the translations that have occurred over the centuries hasn't somehow morphed it into a completely different set of principles and stories? How do we know all that? And you and I, if we don't have faith that is grounded in fact, our faith at some point will be attacked and we will wobble. So we need to have intellectual reasons for believing what we believe. Isn't that what faith is? Faith is not just going, oh God, I pray that you're there, that you hear me, and that maybe you do what I ask. That's kind of an exercise of faith. But genuine Bible faith is saying, God, I know who you are. I know what you said. I know that your son Jesus is an historical figure that died once for all and carried my wounds, my diseases, and my sin on his shoulders. And I know for a fact that I'm born again and that when I cry out to you because you're my heavenly father, if I pray according to your will, you will answer in your time. 
Those are facts based on information written in this book. So if we strengthen our intellectual understanding, our faith could grow with it. Not automatic, but if you choose to believe what the facts are, your faith will stand against everything to the point where you or I may be asked one day by the Lord to endure persecution of a jail sentence rather than back down. That day may be coming before we pass to the next life. So let's take a look at some of the questions that need to be answered if we want to be certain where the Bible came from. First one is, are Bible characters real people? Are they real people? Are they invented by someone's imagination and they just sort of propped up as fantasy and we've read the story so long we just decided eventually to believe that they are real? Here are a few facts. Do you know that, well, first let's tell, let's see what God says about his word, about the people, the characters in the Bible. Hebrews 1 Verse 1 says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God says, from his perspective, that's a fact. Now someone who argues could go, well, of course God's going to defend himself. If, if it's his story, he gets to make up whatever he wants. So it's kind of like a circular reasoning in the world of true logic. But we at least need to go, okay, here's what God says about himself and the people in his story. Spoke to prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. According to God, that's a fact. Whether you and I believe it or not, this is God's opinion. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So it's, it's appropriate for any human being to read these kinds of verses and based on that information alone say, that's enough for me. I don't need any more proof. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Amen? However, we don't live in a culture with Christian bases for what's believed in our society. So we're encountering people all the time who won't take the Word of God as the starting point, or the middle, or the end. So there's nothing wrong with having a few additional bits of information surrounding the Scripture, just to add to and bolster the case for you first, but also for your friends and mine. One other thing God says about His Word, I love this, all Scripture is what? God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What I love about that, A, is that the breath of God, the spirit of God, the very life, the pulse, the energy, the presence, the essence of God is in this book. And it's also, secondly, how God used human beings to communicate divine truth, fallen, broken humans, to communicate perfect truth, because it wasn't the humans that came up with it. It was the Spirit of God moving through the humans into their pen, into their preaching. But it doesn't hurt to have a little bit of other information. Let me just give you a list of um, some of the historical records that have occurred throughout history that speak of Bible characters as real people outside the Bible. In fact, it's primary source is the Assyrian history books under King Sennacherib way, way back in 500 B.C., who writes about Bible characters, and he has specific, unequivocal evidence of these people from the Bible. Ahab, king of Israel. Heard of him? Sennacherib says he existed. Um, Artaxerxes of Nehemiah, the one who gave permission to Nehemiah to come back from Babylon to rebuild the temple walls. Belshazzar, 
the prince in the book of Daniel who was in power when Daniel and his three friends were sentenced to the fiery furnace. Cyrus and Darius, also of Daniel, who later gave permission for Daniel to, uh, to take office there in Babylon. Hezekiah, the king. Manasseh, the king. Both kings of Judah. Um, there are historical records from a man by the name of Josephus who lived from about 20 B.C. till about 40 or 50 A.D., right around the time of Christ, both before and after, who has specific statements made about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus, Gamaliel, and uh, who's the guy that took his, Joseph of Arimathea. Historical records. Outside, he was not a believer. He was a Jewish historian. So there's all kinds of evidence that, that these are real people. The Bible is not an invention. There are people who have historicity. That's simply saying they're actual people in actual real history, concrete bodies and lives that were lived. One of uh, my favorite prophets and men of wisdom, Darth Vader, um, <laughs> said in Star Wars, and, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who he's speaking to, but it could have been Obi-Wan. He said, I find your lack of faith fascinating. Okay, just an invented character. But I thought, what a, what a cool thing that, that even in, in everyday culture, uh, what is propped up is, is an understanding that there is another world out there. And there is evidence of that world. And in our case, it's the kingdom of God. And, and if we would just recognize that people who don't believe the Bible, if they're not putting their faith in it, then they are by default putting their faith in something else. Think about that. I don't believe the Bible is written by real people. Well, then what do you believe? Because you're, you're acting like an authority here. And so you've got a lot of confidence that A, maybe God doesn't exist, or B, the Bible was just invented by man. Okay, great. But what do you therefore believe in? Yourself? That takes a lot of faith. It takes as much faith to believe the Bible doesn't exist, or God doesn't exist, as it does to believe in anything else. Can you imagine how much faith it requires to believe in evolution? It's still just a theory. It's not scientific evidence. Science requires reproducible conditions with reproducible results. I can't do that for creation, but I can't do that for evolution either. Both are theoretical and have to be accepted by faith. One of the other things that I find interesting, in fact, I, I was just talking with a, a friend a couple weeks ago who said, I, I, I think the... Uh, the place where we got our morals, our understanding of right and wrong, was um, a group of people decided that, you know, when we do things that are wrong, like murder each other and steal and hurt one another, it's kind of bad for the group. And so they decided, let's sort of help our group survive a little bit longer. And that was his, that was his position. I said, I don't know, I, I, I get what you're coming from, but you know, I, I can't imagine that there would be anybody in that group who had enough influence and authority to get everybody else to agree. Humans just aren't like that. We're way too independent. Today we are. I'm sure thousands of years ago they were as well. Or what would be helpful for my group, my family, might be hurtful for your group. For instance, it's really helpful for me to go steal all of your wheat and your cattle. Woohoo! That's right. It's the right thing to do, but of course it's not right for the other family. So again, thinking logically, not having a place a reference point that's fixed in facts, 
requires a person to believe something else. And, and it would be helpful sometimes for us to ask, what is that something else? Because it's probably got as many holes as you think the Bible has. One other argument I used to uh, make when I was a young Christian, or still not a Christian, but researching, is I, I began to say things like, you know, people like Peter, Jesus, John, they, they just really were just exceptionally kind and gracious and caring, and they were just trying to help everyone else. So they wrote down some good laws, like, you know, the golden rule and the beatitudes that Jesus preached. And they were just really good people, and they really had this generous, magnanimous spirit. They just wanted to help everybody, and that's where all this stuff came from. And that kind of sounds logical. I used to say that to, to Christians. And then somebody once said to me, all that and then die for it? I, I, who do you know today that would be like, the, oh, well, you know, back in those days they were a little more, what, stupid? <laughs> so if you think it through, it, it doesn't make sense. People rarely, now there are, obviously, in some religions, Islam is one that says if you are martyred for the advance of the cause of Islam, you will be rewarded. And of course, that's a bunch of baloney. It's not true. There are people who will die, but they're not so magnanimous and generous that they're creating the Beatitudes to make a better world. What are they doing? They're blowing people up. So there's a little bit of a mismatch there. It's not just apples and oranges. So it doesn't make sense that A, there's anyone or a group that has enough influence to create this thing called right and wrong, an absolute standard for everybody else, because no one has that much influence among independent thinking humans in any group. And secondly, this idea that people are just so kind and generous and, and wonderful that they would create all these new rules and regulations and then be killed for it doesn't fit normal, average, everyday human nature. Second question we can ask is what is canonization? This is something that I'm sure you've heard the word, but you might go, you know, I'm not really quite sure what that means. So let's, let's do a definition. I think I wrote it down here. Well, first of all, let's say, what does God think about canonization? I'll tell you what it means. It means measuring stick. It's a Greek word, canon. Literally means ruler. That's all it is. It's 12 inches. It's 12 inches. It's a standard. It's a measuring stick. God says, I don't need man's measuring stick because here's what I think. Every matter, if it's established by the testimony of two or three eyewitnesses can be established as truth. That's God's principle. Honest humans who share the same story about an event can be counted on. That's plain and simple from God's point of view. And then, of course, in his own opinion, he says about himself, let God be true, but every man a liar, relatively speaking. Okay, so that's God's opinion. We don't need more than that. But to bolster your belief in God's word, we need to recognize that Bible canonization, which is the process of determining which books belong in the Bible and which ones don't. Have you noticed there's nowhere in the Bible that says, the, here's the list of books that should be here. There just isn't, because they are just gradually being written and added as scripture and approved over centuries and centuries and centuries. And so it wasn't until really late in the process that Christians who were testifying like eyewitnesses to not only the stories in the Bible, but also the, um, the effect of living out the Christian life began to sit in rooms and have councils and agree and go, that, that really works. 
So let me give you a history first, and then I'll give you the criteria. The measuring stick. How do you know which Bibles belong in the Bible, or which books belong in the Bible? Between 1400 and 400 B.C., remember numbers go backwards in B.C., down to zero, uh, the books of the Hebrew Old Testament were all written, 39 books. But there was no authority that said this is the Word of God except the Word of God saying it about itself. There hadn't yet been a meeting of the minds among Jews to affirm that. And then 250 to 200 B.C., was just a, a couple hundred years before Christ, Latin was the primary language spoken in the Greek and the Roman Empire, and so they produced the Septuagint, a popular Greek translation. I'm sorry, not Latin, it's Greek. Uh, translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so all Old Testaments are now written in Greek. All the Greek communities can read the Scriptures. It was then in 45 to 85 A.D., books of the Greek New Testament were written, okay? The events occurred around 0 to 30 A.D., Christ's life and birth, and then a few events in the book of Acts, in the life of Paul and the, uh, John the Apostle. All of those books, the Gospels and the Epistles of Paul, were written somewhere around 45 to 85 A.D., but they were being circulated literally like uh, newspapers. You know, they'd be rolled up as scrolls and passed down from one church to another, and one person, they'd travel across, literally all the way to, to Egypt and... Uh, Mesopotamia, all around the civilized world with copies of Scripture. Then, between 90 and 118, there were two different councils called the Councils of Jamnia, gave final affirmation to the Old Testament canon. I want you to recognize something. The first books, Job being the earliest, were written in the Old Testament, but never, quote, canonized or authorized for about 1,500 years later. So there are people following and, and believing that this is the Word of God, but there wasn't any exterior historical uh, affirmation saying this book belongs, this one doesn't. By the way, there are several books known as the Apocrypha. Uh, some Bibles, like the Catholic Bible, have an, an intertestamental period with the Apocryphal books. What's interesting about those books is they have some historical truth, but a lot of spiritual silliness things that are not true, and that's why they've been excluded, because councils like this one decided, you know what, as those things are being written, they don't match, and I'll give you the criteria for how they knew that in a minute. 140 to 150 Orthodox Christians established the New Testament canon. It was 150 years after the time of Christ when they finally said, these letters can be trusted. And then in 400, Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, that's what I meant. It was in the Roman Empire that the Latin language was then the language of the land, so we have a Latin Bible. Then a guy named Cademont, a monk, divided the Bible books into verses. 735, historian Beattie translated the Gospels into English. 1300, the invention of eyeglasses aids copying. <laughs> Love it. We're going to talk about the copying Practice of copying scripture next week. It's fascinating when you understand the scrutiny and the intensity that these scribes and copyists had to follow. And then finally, 1380 to 82, John Wycliffe and associates make the first translation of the whole Bible into English. And then 1455, Gutenberg prints the first Bible on his Mac. The printing press. Can you believe what an amazing invention that was? Wow, talk about the production and proliferation of the greatest story ever told. Whereas before it was all handwritten, there were still thousands of copies. And again, we'll talk about how many copies there were of both Old and New Testament manuscripts. But boy, the printing press 
turned the world upside down. He was the Bill Gates of his era. In 1525, William Tyndale makes the first translation of the New Testament from Greek into English. And finally, 1607 to 11, King James Version comes out as the authorized version of the Bible. Why is all this important? Well, it's because these four criteria for canonization for a book or a writing or an epistle, a letter, to pass the muster of being included in the Scripture requires these four things. I don't know if I wrote them down. Let's see. That way you can just kind of, oh, look at that. Four criteria for canonicity. Number one, apostolic origin. Did a man or a woman, a person that lived at the same time as Jesus, who was named an apostle, how many were there? Twelve. One was bad. Eleven were good. And then there was Paul the apostle, correct? Okay, so those twelve men, if they wrote a letter and they pass all the other criteria, we're calling it scripture, period. That sounds pretty safe, don't you think? The second criteria, universal acceptance. This means that it wasn't a writing that was just a favorite of the group of Christians in Alexandria, the group of Christians over in, you know, Caesarea. No, it's universally accepted. Everybody who reads these things goes, oh yeah, uh, there's a witness of the Holy Spirit here. I I get this, I agree. This is totally God. Third one, liturgical use. That means everyday church. When people are having communion, do they share from the same script? Jesus, on the day that he was to be betrayed, held the cup and the bread. The same gospel that was written by John, Luke, Mark, and Matthew are the ones that were used everywhere churches gathered in the name of Jesus. So that's, that's a good criteria. And then finally, a consistent message. This is probably one of the best, and again, I'm going to get into this next Sunday. It's, it's fascinating when you think about the message of the Bible having to be consistent with itself. And this is where a lot of the apocryphal books were tossed. When it talked about salvation by grace and a few extra Jewish Hebrew works and keeping of the law on the side. But that's not consistent. Paul's gospel is completely clear. Grace by faith alone is what brings salvation. When we hear stories that um, such and such an apostle went to India and preached, no, actually it was Jesus who went to India and preached there. Uh, Everybody else is going, I don't think so. That never happened. That that gets tossed. So consistent message. So here's, here's what we want to do with all of this. When you and I are thinking about the authority of Scripture, the authenticity of this book, There have been hundreds, probably thousands of men and women, many of whom are smarter than you and I and more committed to Christ than you and I, who've been gathering for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and saying, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is it. And I I don't say it to say it will take it on their word. No, the Holy Spirit is the one who bears witness of the truth. But what I do want to say is when you and I begin to doubt the authenticity of this book, here's what we're actually doing by default. We're elevating ourselves above all these sincere, precious, intelligent, devoted, even martyred disciples of Christ who've gone before us. And that ought to scare us a little bit. 
Don't think you're so smart and so committed and have this new angelic insight that's suddenly going to get better than this. People have been working on this for a long, long time. That should help bolster. Or if you have a doubter, just ask the same question. So why would I trust your opinion instead of all these thousands of people who have been doing this for their entire lives? And some have died for what they did. In fact, William Tyndale was burned at the stake when he translated the Bible into English. Okay, canonicity. You know, there are um, a couple of questions, too, about uh, the manuscripts themselves. How many of you have heard people say, you know, I, I, you can't believe the Bible. In fact, Shirley MacLaine made a movie years ago, I forgot, but it was, she was a medium or some kind of soothsayer. She was being interviewed by Larry King, and uh, a Christian called in and asked a question and said, uh, Shirley, I don't know how you can believe all that stuff when the Bible clearly says this and that and the other, and hung up. And Shirley MacLaine well, goes, well, everybody knows. It's been translated so many times. It's, it's a thousand miles from where it began. And Larry King goes, oh yeah, everybody knows that. <laughs> See what happens? People swallow things because it kind of makes sense because people think the Bible was translated the same way you and I play that game, telephone, remember? Yeah. Telephone, you start with a message and then you whisper it and you whisper it and you whisper it. It's a, we should play that again. It's a fun game. And you get all the way to the end and you go, holy cow, that's not even close to what started here. People think that's what happened in translation of the scriptures. Like we took the, the first partial one, and we didn't do any more archaeological research. We just used that and kind of fixed it up a little bit. And then we used that one and fixed that one up. Not true. It's actually the opposite. Archaeologists are finding more and more and more, even to today, manuscripts that are older and older and older and closer to the original. In fact, the oldest one that was found, 1956, not long ago, found a portion of the Gospel of John dated at 117 A.D. That's close to the apostles. I mean, John the apostle lived till he was 90. So that was about 90 A.D., just a one generation from the original manuscript. And what's Amazing is the wording in that small piece of John's Gospel is identical to the ones that were found that are 300 years newer. Identical, except for, and we'll look at this next week, little tiny ifs, ands, or maybes that really don't affect doctrine or belief or the facts of the story at all. Canonization matters, so if anybody ever asks you about that, say, yeah, I understand what that means. It simply means measuring stick, and people have been measuring this book against itself for years, and I'm telling you, they've done a good job. Last thing I want to cover this morning is just a little bit more for up-to-date for now. And that question is, can modern translations be trusted? Modern translations, like the New American Standard, is like one of the, the, the beginning of the translation boom back in the 60s. And then came the Living Bible in the 70s, and you know, now we've got the Message, and we've got the NIV, the NIV Reader's Virgin, Version, and uh, we've got all kinds. I mean, there's millions. If you go online, uh, what do you call that? BibleGateway.com, yeah. Um, there's a list, long, long list of English Bibles. Then you've got all the foreign languages as well. Long list of translations. Can they be trusted? I say, yeah. I think for the most part, depending on what you're looking for. Remember, there are two ways to read the Bible. You can look at a translation that attempts to translate word by word from the original Hebrew or Greek. No matter how kind of 
disjointed it comes out, you know, because subjects and verbs in many languages are swapped from English. And when you read direct literal translations, they sound kind of flipped upside down, and it's hard to capture the meaning when you're translating word for word. And so what a lot of translators did, and actually King James did a little bit of this too, is, is he transferred idea by idea. These three words really belong this way, and then you'll get the idea that was intended. So translation always requires movement of the actual original language just to get the actual meaning out to some degree. So one of the things that I decided to go back and find out is how, how often did, did Jesus or the apostles kind of rearrange their thoughts and their descriptions in order to increase understanding. And I said, let's start with the master, Jesus himself. When he had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. What do you think the teachers of the law typically like to do? They probably just, hmm, go ahead. Yeah, exaggerate, but they wanted to espouse their knowledge. They wanted to show off. I mean, that was their big deal. That's why they stood on street corners and prayed out loud and wore their phylacteries and everything. Just wanted to show off their spirituality. So they did the same thing when they're trying to educate people. I've got the entire Psalms memorized, and I've got this thing word for word. And they would just kind of go off and get crazy about their, their knowledge and their understanding without really having the authority, the understanding, the internalization of God's word to make it come alive. That's what Jesus did you know he got it. Even though he would hardly, I mean, maybe half the time he would use scripture, the other half, he would tell stories. Why? Because he got it. He, it. It made sense. He understood. And so he was able to just kind of share. And people, by the Holy Spirit, were going, this guy knows what he's talking about. I, I love that there were a few in the Old Testament that did that as well. I'll do that one later. This is the second one. New Testament, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note, what? These men had been with Jesus. So they had authority because they had internalized the word and when they spoke, Peter did use a lot of scripture, but man, there was a conviction where the Spirit of God just brought conviction on people everywhere and they were just believing. They were falling in repentance, saying, yes, I want, I want, I want Jesus. So modern translation actually had its beginning way back in the times of Christ. He began interpreting and restating truths in a way that would penetrate hearts by using word pictures, parables, metaphors, and all kinds of stuff, never forsaking and never moving away from the intent, the original intent of the scriptures themselves. Let's see what else I got here. Ah, here's the Old Testament one. I love this. Ezra. I would have loved to have been Ezra's friend. He was one of the greatest teachers in the Old Testament. Remember, it was when Nehemiah brought people back from exile in Babylon, he, the administrator, insisted on having Ezra the priest come along with him because they had to dig up the book again, the book of God's law. They finally found it buried in some closet collecting dust. Ezra presented it to the people. They had a huge celebration that the word of God had been found. This is the Old Testament, 39 books. And he began to open the pages, and not only Ezra, but all of his, his fellow priests, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamim, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Ezariah, Josephat, a whole team of Levites did what? Explained the law. Here's what it says, now here's what it means. So, so modern translation is really a teaching tool, more than an attempt to improve on 
or necessarily be more specific or better than. It's a teaching tool because understanding increases when things are opened up. The word is opened up and we begin to have application and pictures and parables and metaphors. Make sense? That's the way, if I were you, I would look at modern translations. I heard somebody once say the um, New American Standard Bible was the, oh, it had a great acronym. Anyway, it was like the, the best and the brightest Bible on earth, and somebody else had another acronym for the KJV, and it meant something, no, no, it's the best. And um, then they called the NIV the nearly inspired version. And I'm thinking, like, let's not have Bible wars. I don't want to be a Bible snob. You know, let's, let's look for actual Bible text from as close to the original manuscripts as possible. But once we've established that, don't end there. Go for understanding. And that's what modern translations do. So they become paraphrases sometimes, like the Living Bible, like the message. They might be transliterations, like um, hmm, the New Living Translation Bible. It actually goes from the original Greek and Hebrew, but then actually does a different kind of job than King James did, but uh, very similar, to have, having commentaries. Here's what I want to close with this morning is, it's important that we understand that um, Bible translation always requires some kind of adjustment. So when we talk about the Word of God, we have to recognize the Word of God really is, trans the Logos translates the word message. It really is the entirety of everything God wants to reveal to mankind. So to say I'm believing in the authorized word of God can only mean King James. That, that's not true. King James was a translation that actually used Latin and Greek translations as well as the Hebrew and Greek. So it's got a couple of generations away from the original. So if you're going to start doubting translation, let's doubt that one. NAS, NIV, every Bible that's ever been translated is the same. Here's the other deal. Every language has a limited vocabulary. Gil Gravel and Gloria have noticed this, that they can't tell the maya of Irian Jaya about a camel going through the eye of a needle. They don't have a word for camel or needle. They have nothing. So what's God supposed to do? Say, oh, can't have the word of God. Sorry, it's got to be the original. Would God do that? Of course not. No, they have such a limited vocabulary, they have to, they have to use what's available if the people are going to grasp what God is trying to say. I, I, I went online, authority, I just debunked, but I'm going to do it anyway, um, to ask the question, which language has the smallest vocabulary on earth? And most of the answers I got were, we're not sure, but it could be this one. And one of them that they came up with was the Daruk tribe, an Australian, Australian Aborigine tribe, has a vocabulary of approximately 200 to 250 words. Wow, he's wow. right. Do they deserve the word of God? Yes. Translators have to figure out, how do I tell that story? If I'm, and, and still be accurate. There has to be room in God's heart and mind to go, I saw this coming. And I'm not falling off my throne over it. They're going to capture the essence of the gospel of Christ. And then finally, uh, the English language has 250,000 words in it, the largest vocabulary on earth. So all of this to simply conclude with, can you and I recognize that we have to base our, our faith on facts, not fiction? 
And um, we, have to, we have to recognize that if we're going to be challenged, we have to have something concrete. A, what the Bible says, period, is enough. But in the culture we live in, sometimes our faith will fail us if we don't have it shored up with every bit of truth that God provides around us, the history, the, the witness of the saints, the witness of history, the church fathers, everything you can find to say, I know what I know, and I believe what I believe for a very intelligent reason. Amen? Amen. So, Father, thank you for feeding us this morning in our brains a little bit. And uh, I thank you that if we put these things into practice, our spirits will be enriched. We will be able to be stronger. We will be able to grasp at what it means to be healed and how the power of the Holy Spirit works through supernatural means because our confidence is in the facts of your word. So, Lord, would you give us a hunger and a thirst and, and even a courage so that we're not just... Um, being stymied in fear over political correctness or being accused of intolerance, but that we would stand up and go, man, I, I really, I'm not ashamed and I am not going to back down on this. Help us to walk in the boldness of the Holy Spirit, the courage that comes from faith in the facts of your word. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. amen. Let's stand strong together. God bless you. See you next Sunday. Wow, that was an encouraging message. Please consider this open invitation to come and join us in worship and praise. The Lord's will is made clear in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you. Oh, and here's a final message from Pastor Kevin. Do you ever have thoughts about your purpose in life? Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or maybe you walked away and it's time to come home. You know, really our walk with God is about a personal relationship with Him. That's what He wants. I believe that's what we want. I encourage you to take a few moments and allow this message to sink in. Allow His Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. You know, the Bible says that if we draw close to Him, that He will draw close to us. So do that today. God bless.